Well, good evening. I just want to start off by telling you guys that we serve a good God. That we serve a God who is gracious and merciful, who is slow to anger, and is abounding in steadfast love, who is ready to relent from punishing. We serve a God who is marked by his love and his kindness, his goodness. We serve a God who sees you, who sees all of you, knows you, and loves you. And I taught this morning differently than I'm going to teach it tonight because I'm just overwhelmed by the fact that tonight for you guys in this room that God wants to show you his steadfast love, that he wants to show you his character throughout the book of Jonah, that he wants you to see that he is a gracious and merciful God who is slow to anger who is abounding in steadfast love, who is ready to relent from punishing, and who will go to no end to accomplish good in your life and good for people. That he is a safe God who we can trust. He is a place where we can confidently place our well-being. And the best thing we can do is to walk with him in this life. So to do that, we're going to look at Jonah. We're going to spend most of our time today in Jonah 3. But I want to catch us up if you haven't been here, so you know what's happened in the book of Jonah so far. So far in the book of Jonah, God came to one of his prophets, Jonah. Hence the name of the book. And he said to Jonah, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. See, Jonah was an Old Testament prophet in the mid-700 B.C.s. 700s B.C., I think, maybe. Um, I don't know how to say that properly. I'm not a historian. Um, But he was a prophet. He was a prophet to a king in Israel, and it was not a good king. (laughs) He was actually a really bad king. Um, the king at this point in time, his name was Jeroboam II, and uh, he was terrible. He didn't follow God. He uh, was full of idols. Uh, Jonah's mentioned in Second Kings as well, and it says that this Jeroboam II actually, um, he did not depart from the sins of his namesake, and he caused Israel to sin. So he was such a poor leader that he not only sinned and worshipped idols and did abhorrent practices, but he actually caused his nation to sin as well. And as you read the Old Testament, especially kings, you see how when there's a good king, Israel flourishes because the people are worshiping God. And when there's bad kings and the people turn away from God and take on idols and start worshiping other things, that God's protection over the land kind of lifts. 
and crops fail or invading armies come through and destroy them and they start having adverse adversaries attacking them on all sides. When they turn and repent to God, you see his protection kind of drop back down over the land and things kind of settle in and they're good and they're flourishing. Well, in the time of Jeroboam II, he was such a bad king that Israel was suffering. Um, And in fact, Israel was suffering so much that their future was in jeopardy. Um, There's this one text in 2 Kings 14. It says, um, it's talking about the king. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not repent from all the sins of Jeroboam of Nebat, which caused Israel to sin. However, he restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah the prophet, who is from Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw the distress of Israel was very bitter, and there was no one left, bond or free, and no one to help Israel. But the Lord had said that he would not blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Joash. So God actually does something special in this part of history, that normally he allows the bad to flood in when Israel is not worshiping him. But because the bad was flooding in, it was actually going to fall apart. And he's like, I made a promise that I would not blot out Israel. So he rose up Jonah, this prophet, to speak God's words to this bad king, Jeroboam II. And he was able to restore land that was lost to Israel about a hundred years beforehand. And he helped defend the borders and push back the Assyrian Empire that had been attacking and harming Israel. So that's important for two reasons. One, it hits on our theme that God is a gracious and loving God who sees us in our affliction, even if our affliction is caused by ourself and our sinfulness. And he is slow to anger and he is abounding in steadfast love. We can see that he provided Jonah as provision to Israel, even though they were walking in sin. And he rescued them and pushed back this marauding army, even though they were harming Israel, and Israel didn't deserve the grace of God here. God defended them for his own purposes and for his own promises. The second reason why I wanted to highlight that is because Assyria, the empire that was locked in conflict with Israel, um, they had two capital cities, one Asher and the other one was Nineveh. And so the Lord coming to Jonah and saying, go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me, is a charged invitation It's not just saying, oh, go to this random city somewhere and preach against it. It's saying, go to the very seat of the government of your enemies, the ones who you have been prophesying against and fighting. Go there and prophesy to them. But Jonah set out, and he decided not to go, He decided to do the exact opposite. Will you go to map two? I'm skipping map one tonight. Map two. So he was sent to go to Nineveh, where he was supposed to go. And instead of going there, he decided to book passage to 
Tarshish, which is in Spain, and is about as far as you can possibly get. It was actually the extent of the known world, the farthest place that you could sail to. He ran from God. It says, Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of God. He went down to Joppa, he got a ship, and he took off to go to Tarshish. So Jonah actually fled from the Lord. He did not want to carry out this assignment because our spoiler alert comes. Well, I'm not going to spoil it yet. The spoiler alert is the main part of our sermon today, that God is good. Um, But Jonah decided he did not want to stay in the presence of God. He decided to leave and go in the opposite direction. But God is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. But he is also an unstoppable God. He is not a weak God. He is a powerful God. And God will accomplish his will no matter what. And so Jonah running away in abject disobedience to God did not stop God. God raised up a supernatural storm against Jonah and stopped this ship. Um, Everybody was afraid that the boat was going to fall apart and they were all going to die in the Mediterranean Sea. So they cast lots to find out who is responsible. And it turns out Jonah is responsible. And he says to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. And the sea will quiet down for you because I know it's me. It's because of me that this great storm has come upon you. These people did not want to just toss a man overboard. And so they didn't. And they said, please, O Lord, we pray, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood. For, O Lord, you have pleased, you have done as you pleased. So they didn't want to be guilty. These guys didn't want to kill him, but they're like, felt like they were between a storm and death. So they threw him overboard. And what we see is God's tremendous mercy, that the ship stops, the storm stops, that they are rescued, that they... um, ended up fearing God even more, and they offered sacrifices to God and made vows because they saw his power. A Lord is also gracious and merciful and provided a giant fish to swallow up Jonah and carry him to shore. Now, one of the difficult things with the book of Jonah is that we run into this place where there is a giant fish that swallows a man. And the man lives like Geppetto and Pinocchio in his belly for three days and then is spat out on the shore. And some of us say, hey, that seems really improbable because it is really improbable. In fact, I would say impossible. And so it was miraculous. Jonah is a book deeply rooted in history, both through Assyrian history, you can see it, and we'll look a little bit more at that, and through Hebrew history and Jewish history, you see that, and we get to this difficult thing and say, oh, maybe this never happened, and it's just a story because of this crazy thing with a whale. Um, God does miraculous things like seas parting and the dead raising, and just because he chose to use a miraculous whale to save him does not mean the story is just a parable. That I think I'm convinced, other people aren't, but I'm convinced that this is true. And it so closely maps history of the region and conflicts in the region that it is true. But 
So God is merciful and he provides this miraculous fish to swallow Jonah and to spit him out on shore. It's cool. Jonah recognizes God's goodness and mercy. Last week, Rob looked at this psalm that he prays in the belly of the fish. I called on the Lord out of my distress and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried and you heard my voice. And God is gracious and merciful Even though Jonah walked in the opposite direction, directly disobeyed God, God stepped in in the midst of his disobedience and rescued him. Which brings us to today. Today we're going to look at Jonah 3. We're going to look at it in three sections. And we're going to ask three questions of each section. First question, or the first section, is the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. The three questions we're going to ask, what does this say about man? Well, this reminds us of the fact that Jonah is ridiculously sinful that he directly disobeyed God. He's a man who has a conversational relationship with the Lord, has a track record of accurately prophesying to kings in order to help overcome enemies. Here's the word of the Lord. Isn't mistaken. Oh, did you say Spain or Nineveh? Didn't get a mistake, knew exactly what was happening, and ran in disobedience away from the Lord. Second question we ask, what does this say about God? What this says about God is that he is a gracious God who is merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. That he saved Jonah out of his disobedience, stopped him in his disobedience, saved him by pulling him out of the water, And it says, the, Lord of the, word, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. That even though Jonah directly disobeyed God, that the Lord came back a second time and gave Jonah another opportunity to accomplish God's purposes for his life. And so three, what is the right response to the reality of who we are, who the man is in the story, and who God is? Jonah gave a right response. The right response that Jonah gave is that he didn't say, God, I'm sorry. He actually doesn't apologize from what we see in the text. He doesn't say, God, I'm so sorry. I'm going to stay here on the beach. God, I'm so sorry, but I'm still going to go to Tarshish. He repents. And here, repentance is not saying sorry. Here, repentance is in the very true definition of the word. It is a changing of one's mind or a changing of one's direction. That instead of going to Tarshish, Spain on a ship, he instead proceeds to Nineveh. So Jonah's a mess. God is really good. In light of that, Jonah repents from going in his own direction and decides to go in the direction that God has for him. Section number two, Jonah shows up to Nineveh. 
Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city. To, it was a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk. And he cried out, Forty more days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they proclaimed a fast. And everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covering himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes, and he made a proclamation in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. And all shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? Maybe God will relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. Something here is amazing that happens. A single man, a foreigner from an enemy territory, walks into a city of more than 120,000 people, the largest city in the region. He walks in and he says one sentence. Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And what happens next is unbelievable. The whole city turns. The whole city recognizes their sinfulness. Even the king recognizes and repents. And this is one of the cool pieces. Because I don't know if this is exactly what happened, but it totally could be. There is this like decisive point in Assyrian history in 763 that is recorded in their history when there was a total solar eclipse and at the same time an uprising in the city of Asher. It is likely, it's possible, likely might be a stretch, it is possible that Jonah walked into the city, said in 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown right at the moment when a solar eclipse passes, lights go out, and that catches everyone's attention. I'm not certain that's what happened. It could be. But what did happen is that the Spirit of God moved powerfully in order to convict an entire city and their king all at the same time that they need to turn from their evil ways and humble themselves and seek the Lord is an amazing miracle. What happened here? There are a few things that happened. One is that we have the kind of God who despises wickedness, despises violence, and despises evil so much that he acts in human history. Started off by saying, the wickedness of Nineveh has come up before me. That God saw the wickedness, and it was so much evil that he decided to intervene. So he sent a prophet and to declare the doom of this nation if they did not repent. But what is crazy, cool, what is cool, is that these people recognize their own sinfulness. I thought it was just striking, but because these are not Hebrew people. These aren't the Jews. They don't have the law. They don't have Scripture, right? So how could they know that what they are doing is abhorrent? Well, one, we are all built in the image of God, and so we have a conscience, and we can recognize good and evil. But that God also reveals himself naturally in Romans 1. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since creation of the world, His eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things He has made. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. That God reveals Himself naturally through created order. There's something called natural law where we can understand how things work and how God works. And these people became aware of their sin, not through a preaching of the word, but by God's spirit working, seeing that they have violated God's natural law. All should turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. As I looked at Assyrian history this week, I saw that there was evil in their worship. There was evil in their warfare. That they were a violent people. But then they recognized it. So what happened here, there's an order of events. One, there is a good God who hates wickedness and who stands against it and utterly opposes what is evil. He opposes evil and violence. That he commissioned his prophet to go and to speak. He sent Jonah to go and engage this evil. Romans 10.14 says, But how are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one whom they have never heard? And now, how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That God commissioned and sent his prophet Jonah to these people. What's amazing is that then as he spoke, maybe with an eclipse, the people heard. They heard the word of God. God is constantly speaking. This good God of compassion and love is constantly speaking. He is constantly revealing himself through nature, through his word, through his church, through your experiences in life. He is constantly speaking. But do we hear his voice? And when these people heard the word of God, in 40 more days, Nineveh will be destroyed. It brought conviction. The Holy Spirit's job is to bring conviction. John 16, 8 says, And when the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And we see the conviction wrought out in the words of their king. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence in their hands. Here is sin and righteousness. That they are not righteous and they are acting in evil and violent ways. And their awareness of judgment shows up. Maybe God will relent and change his mind and he may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. And so the response. Jonah was commissioned by God. He spoke the word of God, the message that God gave him to speak. The people heard miraculously and were convicted by the Holy Spirit and they responded in three ways. They humbled themselves. 
They put on ashes and sackcloth, which is a weird custom that we don't do today, but it is a custom of the ancient Near East to embody humility, to take off all your finery, all the clothes that give you status, to cover yourself in ashes, dirt, which, separate, which puts you at a humble place. They humbled themselves. And then they repented. Their king called for repentance. All shall turn from their evil ways. The definition of repentance, changing your mind or turning around, changing directions. We will repent corporately as a nation. We will turn from the direction that we were walking and we will walk in a new direction towards righteousness and away from evil and violence. They humbled themselves, they repented, and they looked to God for mercy. What's interesting, though, is that you see a big difference, that although God has been revealed to them naturally and they can see that they are violating his natural law and not living correctly, they do not know the character of God. Because they say, who knows? Maybe God will relent and change his mind. What's interesting is Jonah, the prophet who does know God, knows that he is a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, ready to relent from punishing. And so it comes to no surprise to Jonah of how God responds in 3.10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So wait, God changed his mind? I thought God didn't change his mind. Well, God didn't change his mind about dealing with the wickedness that came up before him. His ultimate goal was not punishment. His ultimate goal was the extinguishing or mitigating of the evil that was happening there. His ultimate goal in the universe is not punishment of sin. His ultimate goal is eradication of sin. <laughs> and it's not even eradication of sin. His ultimate goal is the restoration of relationship with his people, with creation to himself, of drawing all things up into himself and reconciling us into himself. Dealing with sin is, is a tactic in the strategy of restoration of all things and the renewal of all things. His divine response here to turn from his evil ways, to turn from the, when they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he was going to bring on them and he did not do it because he did not have to do it. He was going to utterly destroy Nineveh had they not turned because he was dealing with the wickedness that was there. But through Jonah, he offered up the opportunity for the wickedness to be dealt with. And it was dealt with. He didn't have to deal with it through utter destruction. He could deal with it through repentance. I don't want to steal too much of four, but it's really funny because this really made Jonah angry. And he got angry with God and said, this is why I left, is because you are this kind of God. You are a God. He said, he says, oh Lord, is this not what I said while I was still in my own country? This is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew you were a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. 
Jonah is mad because he knows God's character. He knows who he is. He knows that he was going to turn from harming Nineveh instead of destroying them. And this is his arch enemy. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us today that we have a gracious and merciful God who is slow to anger and abounds in steadfast love and is ready to relent from punishing? We're going to ask the same three questions. What does this mean for us? For us, it means that we need a Savior. We need a God like this. It is good news that there is a God like this. Because whether you walk closely with God, like Jonah did, we can, on purpose, run away from his will. We can, by accident, stray from our intimacy with the Lord. And we can find ourselves at a distance from him. We need a merciful God if we are like Jonah and walked closely with him or walk closely with him because we are bumbling humans and we sin and we mess up and we need a God who is merciful. And if you are far off like the Ninevites, if you have been living a life of violence and evil, you need a merciful God because he is opposed to those things. And you know in your heart, just as the Ninevites knew in their heart, that these things are abhorrent and wrong and there will be consequences. What do we learn from this text? That God is not afraid of disobedient children. He is not afraid of violent, abhorrent nations that do awful things. That God's love for his people and love for nations is not contingent on their behavior. God's love transcends your behavior. So if you find yourself like Jonah away from God or really far from God like Nineveh, that's okay because God loves you. It's not okay to be far away, but God loves you. God loves you, and he invites repentance. He invites a turning around from going in your own futile or painful or lonely direction, and he invites to turn and walk with him. The power of repentance isn't really about saying, I'm sorry. It's not. That can be part of repentance, but it's not primarily about saying, I'm sorry. It's about acknowledging that you are moving in the wrong direction and altering your course to move in the right direction. And repentance isn't primarily about skirting punishment. Repentance is primarily about getting to walk with God. It is about getting to walk with and live with Jesus which is really good news. God so loved the world that he sent his son to die so that all, might, all who believe in him might be saved, right? Not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. He sent Jesus to come and die to deal with sin, 
to deal with punishment, to deal with all of that mess so that we could be restored in relationship to God. The point of repentance is God. So friends, I want to invite you tonight. We're going to take communion in a minute. So if you're doing communion, if you could get that ready. We take communion here every week because we remember the type of God that we serve. I'm going to read it again. We serve a gracious God who is merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. The God who relents from punishing an evil city because they repent and turn is the God who sent his son to die so that all might be able to repent and turn from evil ways and walk in newness of life. We take communion to remember that Jesus willingly suffered and died on the cross and to participate in the grace that is offered to us. And so as we prepare to take communion, I want to invite you guys to meditate on what you heard. I spoke tonight. You heard tonight. You guys each heard something slightly different because you're all coming from a unique perspective and a unique history. But you heard something that is going to rise above the other things that you heard, that God, the Holy Spirit, will bring with conviction something. And that might be, goodness, I love you. (laughs) I am a merciful God, and I love you. It might be that I am abounding in steadfast love, that I have so much love, I have more love than you have an appetite for love. It might be, oh my goodness, I have strayed off the wrong path. I I am in Spain instead of Nineveh, that I have walked in the opposite direction. Oh my goodness. It might be, man, my life looks like these godless Ninevites that I am just racked up in a bunch of mess. I don't know what it is. But whatever it is, would you meditate on that? And what's cool is that whatever it is, each thing, each thing that you guys are thinking about right now, each thing has the same answer. It is Jesus The end of each one of those questions is the same. It is Jesus. If you found yourself in sin, if you found yourself in loneliness, if you found yourself just reeling in confusion, Jesus loves you and he is real. If you find yourself in sin, if you find yourself where you don't want to be and you find yourself in a mess, Jesus is the answer that he has the forgiveness that you need. He has the capability of healing you. He can do that. And he is a compassionate and loving God. If what God was doing tonight in your heart was reaffirming who you are and reminding you of your tremendous worth and how much he loves you, it's Jesus that was doing that. So tonight, as we take communion and as we sit in this time, would you guys meditate on Jesus with me?